course, you are an artist arranger, but you started out in New York, I believe, as, as an arranger. I did. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I arranged for every singer that wanted a piano player slash arranger in New York for, say, about 40 years before I met Beth. So I would, but I was like hot. I was a hot accompanist, you know, accompanying and piano playing are two different things. And I, I have it down. I know how to accompany real well. I can't do flourishes and, you know, a lot of great piano playing, jazz playing, but I, I'm my own one-man band, and singers loved that. They loved to be able to be accompanied by this percussive keyboard guy. And then, of course, they'd hire me to write out whatever I came up with. I would write out for them, and little by little, I began to uh, get work. Well, the singers, you know, they were, uh, it was theater people, it was cabaret people, nightclub people, duos, and girl singers, and boy singers, and anybody who needed an arranger. It wasn't like, you know, I wasn't arranging for Peggy Lee yet, you know, I wasn't doing the big stuff yet, but I was, you know, I was doing all of the small stuff like that. I didn't even, I never even got into the, uh, the studio stuff at that point until I started to arrange for, for jingles. And that was a major lift up in my career. That's can can you talk about a little bit about how, you know, arranging for jingles is different than no, arranging a song? Well, only because it's 30 seconds or a minute long, you know, jingles are... Um, I mean, first I would, I would write them, I would write them and then I would arrange them. That's what I've always done with my career. I've, I don't think I've ever, even myself, I don't think I've ever made an album. I mean, I can count it on the fingers of one hand, the songs that I did not lay out or begin the arrangement. Um, I, even when I worked with Johnny Mandel, I was right next to him, helping him to lay out the song the way I, I wanted it to be laid out. And then, of course, he did his genius, his, the genius from the rest of it, you know, the fistful of chords and you know, wonderful sounding orchestrations and all. But what I love doing is laying it out. And um, that's what I did with these uh, jingles. Uh, I would write the State Farm Insurance commercial, and then I would you know, I would write out what they wanted. They would, you know, tell me it was going to be gentle, it was going to be a girl singer, and I would write out the oboe part. And, you know, the whole, uh, actually, I was actually doing the entire orchestrating and arrangements for those commercials for, you know, beers and Stridex and McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and, you know, all, all of that. That's what I was doing for, like, for years. I did that. Not many years, but for years, and that paid handsomely. Very happy to hear that. <laughs> um, and you know, what I learned is how to be able to do that quickly, within a minute or 30 seconds, and there's a different sound to commercials. There's a commercial sound, and they ain't kidding. It's a commercial sound uh, between the combination of the background singers and the chart itself. It's got to burst through two little tinny speakers and grab the listener's attention. So that's what I learned for those three or four years, how to do that, especially with engineers. Engineers really are different in the commercial world than they are in the recording world. And, you know, they know how to do this. They crank up the EQ or something, and it just bursts through the speakers. And 
a lot has to do with how you arrange the orchestra and how how many times you double the vocalists and how many times you uh, you know what what echo you turn up on the various machines. I mean, it bursts through the television set, and when I got an opportunity to do my first record, that's what I walked into the recording studio knowing. I didn't know about classical music. I didn't know about um, legit stuff. I knew how to make a commercial. And so my first album was filled with all of those rules. Yeah, I mean, it certainly uh, is evident in, in your pop hits that you've really, uh, one, of the, one of the prime examples is, uh, one of the prime elements is dynamics. I mean, you use that a lot in jingles, and I, you certainly use it a lot in your, in your arrangements of your songs. Well, those dynamics, the builds and the key changes and the, all of those tricks, I learned that from my parents' albums. Um, they were very musical, my family and uh, my parents, Billy, my stepfather. And uh, he brought into my life a stack of albums when they, when they got married when I was 13. Um, that changed my life. Uh, it was albums filled with, um, uh, with some big bands. It was um, great vocalists like um, Sinatra and Garland. Um, great uh, uh, Broadway show albums like The Most Happy Fella and Kismet. Um, Lambert Hendricks and Ross. And, uh, it, it, it rocked my world. I mean, I, you know, my friends were all glued to Elvis and the doo-wop um, music of the day, and that wasn't doing anything for me. Four chords just didn't do it. You know? I knew I was a musical guy, but I, nothing was turning me on. Until this man came into my life at the age of 13 with this stack of gold and, and actually turned my musical motor on. And one of the things I loved about this, these albums was I didn't know what the hell was moving ballad or the, the build of Sing, 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 you know, Benny Goodman's thing, or um, uh, the string section accompanying some great Sinatra, Only the Lonely thing. I didn't know what that was, but I needed to go and study that. And that's what I began to become obsessed about. The Beatles' George Martin, not the Beatles, oh, the songwriting was great, but it was George Martin that was, that I was, fascinated with. How did he do that? Why did he choose a string quartet under Eleanor McRigby? And how did he write that? It was the piccolo trumpet, you know, and whatever that song was, Patty Lane. And uh, it, it, was, it was those moments that turned me on as a growing musician. And, and that's what uh, affected me as a, an arranger and a, and a producer. So when you, when you say you went to study it, can you uh, talk a little bit about the studying side of that? Well, studying, I mean, I just listened to it over and over again, memorized it, played it, you know, copied it down. It was also a different, it was another element that I always admired. It was the kind of, it was a step before the orchestrator got it. It was the guy that laid it out. You, say, you know, sometimes they just took a great standard and somebody figured out to flip it over into another way of doing it. We'd heard a great standard over and over again, and then somebody took this great standard and flipped it over and made it into another rendition of it. 
you know, there was this guy at the, in the MGM musicals named Roger Edens. Have you heard of Roger Edens? I've heard the name, yeah. And I always love those old MGM musicals, and I can't figure out why I do. But I think it was because of Roger Edens. Um, oh, there were orchestrators after he got his hands on it, but he would take a standard like, you know, But Not For Me or something, and he would twist it around and make it into the chords would change a little, and it would go into a different, it just wasn't a plain old song. Somehow it would, would wind up someplace different. I think that's the step that I really love best about arranging. That step about taking either an already written song or taking a song that I write and massaging it and, and giving it a shape. Then the next step is to orchestrate it and arrange it and you know add the violins and add the big backbeat and add the pianos and stuff. But the first step is to, how do you, how do you want to render the song? I mean, I did it with Mandy, you know, Mandy was a rock and roll song. Um, very, you know, very up-tempo, a lot of guitars. And the rendition that I did of Mandy is totally different. It's totally different than the original. But that's what I love doing. I, I took this big rock and roll song and I started it with a little piano and wound up at the top of the scale, you know, singing the high note with the orchestra screaming at the end, you know. That was the most fun. The most fun was to lay it out at first and to, and to retain the integrity of the song, because I didn't change the plaintiveness of, of the song that the songwriter wrote. I would never tamper with that. But I found a different facet of the song, and that's the most fun for me. Yeah, when I was talking to uh, Richard Carpenter, uh, one of the things which I sort of paralleled was the way that you build a ballad and the way that he, he sometimes would, would do that as well, like, for instance, with Ticket to Ride. I think there there is a kind of a parallel in that the dramatic side of the way that you lay out a song. Um, uh, I think that also you were talking earlier about you know your love of musicals. Um, I noticed in your biography that one of the first things you did when you were very young was you wrote a musical, uh, which which played for six years. Now, obviously, that seems to have very much uh, influenced a lot of a lot of your arrangements of songs, the use of counterlines and the use of drama. Um, you can pick any that you want to talk about in that way, but I think it's pretty clear that musical side. And you know, when I write, also, you know, I always write with that in mind, and that's why it always gets me in trouble with the commercial people because they've always turned my stuff down. Clive and, and uh, you know, radio people—they always say it's too theatrical or it's too sophisticated or it's too this and too that. Sometimes I actually lucked into, you know, this one's for you, and even now, and it's a miracle, and, and um, could it be magic? And, you know, I've actually lucked into just a uh, pop hit. Those are the hardest things for me to write, though. I mean, even now, you know, I think half the fun of even now is in the chart. I mean, I love the song writing. The lyric is beautiful. Marty wrote a beautiful lyric, and I thought the melody was really kind of catchy. But I think the whole fun of that one is in the build and the key change and the orchestration behind it. And that was what that was my most fun laying something like that out. When you're laying it out, what do you do? You, do you generally uh, sit at the piano? Do you have a little tape recorder next to you? Is that do, a, what do you do? I do sit at the piano. I have a tape recorder next to me. Write out the chart, you know. I mean, like on the Sinatra album, you know, Don Sebesky is one of my favorite all-time arrangers. But you know, I wind up trying to find these guys that I can communicate with because I don't orchestrate anymore. It's just too time-consuming, and it's such an art. I, you know, 
I was good at it when I was doing it for Bette and other, other singers. But it was, you know, it's an art. It's a whole different way you do it. It's a whole different way of thinking. So all I can do is to give Don Sebesky, you know, the melody lines of the horns that I want to start, uh, You Make Me Feel So Young with. The three times I want to change keys and how I want to end it. And I wrote it out and I played it on a cassette and he went, oh. And I made it in the studio and it was fantastic. And I had all the stuff that I wanted in it and only he topped me. And my ideas, I am by miles, but it had all the stuff that I loved, all the build, everything that I wanted, and he just said, got it. And now, I don't know what Don would have given me had I not done that. It doesn't really matter. That's what I like to do. Well, you've made it easy for him, because I know, you know, from my point of view, if somebody can sit down at the piano or on the guitar and, and play me through their idea of the song, right. then I've got something really solid. And then you could fly. Then you exactly. could build one. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember when I, the very first thing I did for McCartney, it was kind of really daunting because he just said, I want to do this tune. And I said, well, okay, great. And then he just said, well, I'll see you in the studio. And I said, but, but Paul, how do you want to do it? He says, any way you like, see you there, bye. Well, so that, that's, that's much more daunting for much the arranger. More. I've never done that with an arranger, ever. And the one time I did it, I regretted it. I really regretted it because it, had, it was nothing like I wanted it to be. And so how could I have asked him to read my mind? So I never did that again. I always like give, give my arranger orchestrators every clue I can come up with from, you know, writing it down, you know, to actually, you know, singing it into the tape recorders, you know, to actually doing uh, most of the chart. Do you, uh, I mean, you, when you're laying it out, do you also write out a basic uh, chord chart with a few lead lines sure. for, for the because, guy? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a guy or change that added to. I can see that, yeah. yes, indeed. In fact, that's another interesting, uh, it seems that you, obviously, because you have such a wide background in, in both jazz harmony and musicals, the whole world of Hollywood musicals, you're shoving that stuff in your, in your music all the time. All the time. And, and they don't know what it's. They don't know what it is. You know, the audiences don't know what it is. And that's why, that's why I'm kind of lucky about melding this commercial world of that I learned, you know, in the beginning with this legit Broadway, Nelson, Riddle, David Rose influences, put them all together and give it a big backbeat. And I don't know what the audiences think of it. I just know that if it works, it works big time. Because, the, you know, it's got all of the emotion and all of the musicality that I've always loved. And yet I was able to make Weekend in New England, which shouldn't be a hit record. It's a waltz. <laughs> and it never says the title in the song. It shouldn't have been a hit record, but you know, I was able to make a Aerosmith sounding record out of this, you know, this waltz, you know, and that was because I come from both sides of the of the fence. Yeah, and it's also very much because of the arrangement. It's, I mean, that song is just another example of the the kind of terrace dynamics, you know, the sort of build to, and then that moment of silence, and then you know, all hell breaks loose. And and you do that a lot in your songs. I mean, was that a conscious thing? From, from early on? It just thrilled me. Yeah, I just, I, I always do it. And I, I'm really great at putting things together. That's what I love. I, mean, I just did it on, I'm on this tour in England now. And I, I'm closing the show with a song called Stars in the Night, which closes um, harmony, this musical harmony. Um, in harmony, we don't do it like this. It's, you know, right in, har in harmony, it's done by six guys, it's about six men. On my show, of course, I do. The world comes in. The, the orchestra, you know, the choir of 300 people. You know. 
And uh, so the way I do it is I, you know, I lay it out. I gave it to Jonathan Tunick to orchestrate, and then he did. And now I stand in the in the, in the house and I say, uh, "Could you play that horn line again? Could, could you take it down an octave? Uh, could we like change the ending a little bit? Can you like uh, cut the four? That's how I like to do it. I mean, I keep the orchestra. You know, I torture everybody for hours. But what I finally get is what moves me. And uh, that's what I do in the studio too, with uh, you know, with the weekend and the Winglands and stuff like that. I would write it out. The orchestra would write it out. I'd stand behind the booth and in the booth, and I would say, uh, "Could you just play that string line one more time?" And I would change it right there. It's like charts are us when you work with me. And then you know, within like 20 minutes, we got it. Everybody's got it. And you know, by that time, it, it sounds at least the way I like it to sound. And the drum breaks like you're describing. That's the way it happened in the studio. Well, now, uh, I think it's really relevant to talk about your new album in, in relation to arranging, because uh, certainly on this album, you've done everything and you've done everything, because you've obviously, I mean, I would guess about 90% of it is programmed, mm -hmm. obviously, by you. Now, one of the questions which I've talked a lot to the other arrangers about is how technology has affected their work. Well, on this album, it seems to have affected a lot. Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I just, as an arranger, as you know, you can hear it before you make a fool out of yourself. You know, in the studio, you can hear it before um, you have to, uh, you know, have it played by other instruments. Now you can actually hear the string line and whether it, you know, it's working, whether it's moving you. I was able to do it, do every single song like that. Although I must say that you can get very fooled by making your song sound so great and not having a very good song. So I have to write the song on an acoustic piano without the machines. And it has to work for me that way before I can turn it over to the machines and then arrange it. It still has to work as a song. Because, you know, what I hear on the radio these days is great sounding grooves and records. But if you strip away the groove, you strip away the all the sounds, you haven't got a, you haven't got a song. There's no songs. There's no, certainly there's no standards and classically written songs at all. They sound great. And you can really get fooled by doing it on your machines instead of just sitting at your guitar or playing it on your piano. And this album, I had to be able to play the whole album, all the songs on the album, on my piano before I would go to the uh, machines. What, what program do you use for sequencing? Well, uh, for a, yeah, I, it took this took a little while. This album took about ten years, you know, off and on. Um, I used Vision for a long time, and uh, when Vision went out of business, uh, I changed to Digital Performer, and I did just about everything in Digital Performer. It was really just amazing. I did all my vocals. I was my own engineer. I punched myself in. I did my own comps, and then when I was all done with the whole thing, I sent it to my wonderful. Uh, engineer, co-producer, and he would take my sequences and vocals and, you know, put them through the cuisine arts or whatever they do there and make it sound great. And then I added a um, small string and horn section and uh, Vinnie Caliuda on the drums. Now, I notice uh, the orchestration that you have on it, it is a small string section. I mean, back in the sort of the big, the big ballads, what kind of size string section we're using? Because on this one, it was tiny. Yeah, never big. I, I, I never went the way of the orchestra. You know, I always fought the sound of this um, syrupy, uh, 
ballad crooner. I, I, it, I never made records like that, although you know, many, many people think I probably do, or probably did. But if you listen to the old stuff that I did, it's never heavily string-laden with you know, huge orchestral. You know, Barbara Streisand makes these gorgeous sounding records with symphonic orchestras accompanying her, and they're fantastic. I, but I never, ever did that. I always enjoyed having a little edge to my, uh, to my, my records and my, uh, my songs. I always wanted a, a more muscle than that. And so my string sections were never really huge. But, but I mean, for instance, would you use, say, 20? Maybe. Yeah. At the most. At the most. Because that, that's what I use of preference, because I don't, yeah, I think once you get more than that, it the playing becomes, becomes inaccurate. Yeah. You know, I, have you ever done a symphonic day to symphony day? Oh, sure, yeah. I didn't enjoy my one. I only did one. Neither did I. I, I hated the LSO. I hated the, the RPO. I, I hate working with those guys. Because also, lumbering. Yeah. This lumbering elephant of musicians. That's right. Uh, that I, I could not get, I couldn't get the edge out of them. I couldn't get the, they were never in tempo. You know, they were. It was this huge elephant of of musicians that yeah, I didn't. I really didn't enjoy it. I really didn't enjoy it. There, there's a famous uh, famous English uh, musician who once said, "Hey, could I have the strings and the cans a bit earlier, please?" <laughs> really, isn't that the truth? Really? But but uh, also in terms of what you're talking about, muscle. Let's face it, an arranger writes for the voice that they're writing for. Now your voice is. I mean, in terms of its timbre, is absolutely like a rock. I mean, it's a really strong, solid. It's not a. It's not a soft kind of sound. It's it's a it's a very solid, powerful tone. And well, so, maybe that's why I, I can't. You know, I, I don't. I feel comfortable with the gorgeousness. You know, of like a symphonic orchestra. It doesn't. Once I'm once, when I'm revved up as a performer, when I'm re ready to go. It doesn't feel good to have this beautiful cushion going on behind me. It feels much better to have a big, believe it or not, rock and roll band behind me. I, you know, even though I'm not, like I said, I got one foot in one world and one foot in the other. I wanted to go back for a second, you know, and just to describe for one moment one, one of my all-time favorite uh, uh, things was taking. Um, uh, do you want to dance for Bet and make it into a ballad? I mean, I think that Mandy and Do You Want to Dance are the two real prime examples of what I do, what I love to do the most, which is to take, you know, a song that is known one way, and to find something else in it. I may, you know, I, you know, she is now singing Do You Want to Fuck, not Do You Want to Dance, you know, and that's what I thought was like a really great idea, you know. She's singing Do You Want to Go to Bed with Me instead of Do You Want to Dance, and. Uh, that I think was a big surprise to take that fun little, you know, boogie woogie song or you know, little boogie song and make it into a sexy song for her. You know, that was one of my one of my all time favorite things. Can you take the listener through sort of your process in deconstructing and reconstructing that song? She said, um, "Oh, give me one of those Laura Nero chords, Barry." You know, so I went bang, bang. That was it, and it just kicked me right off into. To a ballad version of that thing. Um, so your new album, getting back to the kind of musical aspect of it, now it obviously, now I, I didn't get any other information or material with the record, but 
but quite obviously, it's a stage musical. Well, you know, all I really wanted to do on this new album was to write songs that were more interesting than your typical 32 Bar Love song. I was just, I didn't know how to make that album anymore. I didn't know how to make another one of those 10 songs of love songs without it being boring to myself. I mean, I'd done so many of them, and I, during those days, I had Clive Davis guiding me along, you know, giving me uh, his input about what would make it on the radio and what would make it in the CD, you know, in the stores and all that stuff. This time I was on my own, and um, I just couldn't imagine making an album of 10 love songs or 10, you know, one up tempo and one ballad, one up tempo and one ballad. I mean, that's what everybody does, that's what I did. But I, given, given, left to my own devices, I, nothing was turning me on. I mean, why would I buy that album? You know, the only reason I would buy this album is if it had a little bit more in it than just your typical 32 bar love song. So that's what turned me on about coming up with a little concept called the Mayflower. It's an apartment building that I grew up near and writing about people's lives behind closed doors. That kind of turned me on. Not as a Broadway musical, and not as a, maybe as a review or something, but I, I, I really wanted it, I, I thought it was an interesting idea to hang a pop album on, uh, instead, of, uh, instead of just the, your, your typical love songs. And so I, I don't see it as a, as a Broadway musical. I mean, I've been writing a few Broadway musicals, and I know what that is. Here at the Mayflower is not a Broadway musical. It's a review, you know, it could be done by a couple of different people because it does have a lot of characters in it, but it's not a Broadway musical. Take my word for it. It ain't a Broadway musical. Well, I mean, you, you've got the characters and you've got some lovely stories and, and, and everything, and also the way that you've put it together, again, the way it's arranged and the way it's put together is, it, it lends itself to that dramatic sort of thing. And you've got, you've also used technology in a kind of an interesting way. And one of the things we've talked about is that technology is sort of part of the arrangement. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you've used effects on the voice. Mm -hmm. You've used uh, other voices coming in, sort of spoken dramatic voices. Was that always the plan from the start? Yeah. Well, actually, I the plan was even more elaborate than that. And then when I actually actually began to hear them, it didn't feel like a record. And I really wanted to stick to making a record and not making a libretto for a Broadway musical, you know, because I, I really didn't want to get myself in trouble, uh, which I could have had I. Had I gone too far? This really is still a pop album. It's just got uh, songs with a little more ideas in it than most songs are. It suggests, though. I mean, obviously, it suggests a story that isn't there. Right. But I mean, and, you make up the story. I just wanted the listener to, to make up the story. When you're doing, I mean, I haven't seen any of the videos for this. But when you have, are you going to be doing videos for it this? It depends on Sony. It depends on what happens with this album. It just came out today. You know what? Next week it enters at number seventeen. So that's good news. Good. That's good news. We like that. Yeah, I, uh, I was just going to say, yeah, for, I mean, the videos, obviously, when you get around to doing that, you've got characters, you've got the setting, you've got, you know, right. so you may end up with a musical without wanting one. Well, you know, that would, be, that would be interesting. I mean, if there was a producer out there who wanted to do a review based on this, yeah, that would be interesting. And you purposely used, like, a, a really small string section. It's In fact, all the orchestration on it is almost what you'd find in the pit of an orchestra. Was that a conscious decision? It was. I didn't want that big, lumbering sound. Again, I think this album has got more of an edge than any of the other albums I've ever made. It's got a funk to it, believe it or not, you know, that I love. I mean, you know, I, you know, my favorite bands are, you know, the Average White Band and, and uh, you know, those, those guys, you know, Sting. And they always have their edge to it, and that's, that's where I was going. I wasn't going towards legit anything. Is there a reason why you didn't uh, play 
acoustic piano on some of the tracks? Because it sounds to me like well, it's like, you like mean, digital well, piano. Yeah. Yeah. That you chose. Well, you know what? Well, that's when I when I say I turn around after I play it on my 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 Yamaha grand piano that I have in my studio. I turn my back and I've got my 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 computers looking at me, and that's how I programmed everything. That's how I programmed everything. And when I gave it to my engineer, that was what was on it. And that was me playing, and they did the best they could um, to make the digital piano sound like a legit uh, piano sound. But you know, you can just go so far. Yeah. You know. It, they have this machine where it actually, and that's what they did on it, that actually plays an acoustic piano. It's like a player grand piano. It goes under the strings. Yeah, and that's what's playing. I mean, it's a real piano playing. It's not a, a it's not my old Yamaha KX88. It's not that, it's not the Proteus, it's not the M1, it's none of that. It's a real Yamaha grand piano that, you know, it was like this piano on the other side of the glass booth and it was playing what my, there was my notes being played, you know, on the piano, and it sounded like a piano to me. Uh, also, the, the sound, if you you know, just listening to all your stuff, as I have been over the last couple of days, uh, the sound of your vocal, in terms of the way it's produced, the different reverbs that you use, the different types of delays. Hardly yeah, any. There's hardly any on this one, which is a much Scary. more modern sound. Scary. Scary for somebody like me who's been like deluged. Deluged. I mean with uh, echo and sound effects and stuff all of these years, but uh, I liked it. I, it was scary for a while, and then I got used to it. No, it works great. But, I mean, again, that's, in, in a way, the, the reverb or the lack of it is kind of part of the arrangement because it influences the sound of the record so much. And was that a conscious thing, yeah. obviously, this time? Yeah, my first instinct is to, you know, give me a little of that stuff. And uh, I, was, I kept being convinced by David Benson, my engineer, co-producer, and everybody around me, you know, to just dry it up, dry it up, and it'll be more real. And it was, it is more real, it's, I think, especially on an album like this. I mean, on the Sinatra album, the Big Band album, you know, you want that Hollywood, Big Band, glamorous thing. But on this one, it really did help, I think, to dry it up and give it more of an edge. Did, um, when, you're, when you're arranging, as you have in the past, a lot for other singers, obviously, the whole arrangement production changes depending on the singer that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of that? Well, you know, when I produce the Nancy Wilson album, you ever get that one? It, it'll be your favorite album. Okay. Thank you. you should get it. It's called With My Lover Beside Me. And um, it's a, um, about ten songs that I wrote melodies to Johnny Mercer's lyrics. John, uh, when he died, his, his widow gave me a whole stack of lyrics that no one had ever put music to. And that's where I got when October goes from. Or goes to one of those lyrics. Well, over the years, I was putting melodies to like, you know, about 12 or 13 of them. They were beautiful lyrics. And I thought, you know, these melodies were really great, but I didn't know what I was going to do with them. And um, I got a phone call from Nancy Wilson's record company, and they said, you know, why don't you, why don't you have something? And I said, you know, I think I've got like about 12 songs that she would sound great on. So Eddie Arkin, my, my co producer at that time, and I, who's a, he's a wonderful arranger too. Um, went into the studio with her, and I would, so it's a long way to answer this question, but whatever I did for Nancy, I would never do for Beth, you know, and whatever I did for Dion on that album, you know, that had I'll Never Love This Way Again and Deja Vu and all, I would never do for Nancy, you know, so, um, it, it, yes, you do think differently. I mean, I become these singers. I'm, my next project, I'm producing and writing an album for Diane Shore, um, 
you know, Diane Shirley, wonderful jazz singer. Now, you know, we're writing songs that are tailor-made for her, and I'm sure when we get down to arranging it, it will be tailor-made arrangements for her voice. Every singer needs, you know, tailor-made arrangements. And, you know, when you listen to some singers, when they just have their, you know, B-flat charts, you know, I always think it's a crime that no one, you know, really listened to their strong points and or their weak points, you know, and that the arranger didn't really know who he was arranging for. <clears throat> Accentuate the positive. You know, some singers can't hit those big notes at the end. Don't give that to them. And I've seen singers trying to do that and trying to compete with orchestras. Um, exactly as you say, range comes into it a lot, doesn't it? And emotion and style. You know, I mean, Diane Shore, for instance, you know, she can sing anything. Um, Nancy Wilson has got a style all, all of her own. And you want to accentuate what she does best, which is this sensual, sexy um, jazz singer. You know, that's what we did on that album. You know, and of course, Dion is the, you know, the world's greatest pop singer. You know, so you want to surround her with the world's greatest pop band. The, um, one of the questions I'm asking all the arrangers is just for some quick arranging do's and don'ts. Do you have any? Uh, arranging do's and don'ts? Um, well, I guess my major um, caveat, my, my one number one rule, number one rule as an arranger, as a musician, but most of all as a person, is to make sure you're accompanying the lyric. It's the trick, it's the whole trick, is to crawl into the lyric as a, a human being. Start there, and then it'll tell you how to arrange the song. That's a pretty good rule. Yeah. That's great. 